Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. It covers films that are brand new out in theaters, VOD streaming services. Some of them may be a little bit older. You can check the back catalog of that for the past few years worth of episodes. You can find all of that information at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be looking at another kickoff to a trilogy of films. I just finished Outrageous Fortune, which was part of my buddy movie CIA comedy trio. This week, continuing on from Outrageous Fortune, is another movie that contains a protagonist who has to don a variety of different disguises and personalities in order to get information very much like Outrageous Fortune. In fact, there are a few other parallels between the two movies that are very interesting. And that's going to kick off a trilogy of films in which the main character is a master of disguise in trying to get information and get access to various places in a comedy. So comedy masters of disguise is what I'm talking about. Fletch is the first film I'm going to be talking about in this trilogy. It came out in 1985. It is a PG-rated film. It does have violence and language. It probably would be PG-13 today. It's a little bit on the racy side for PG, at least how they determine PG and PG-13 ratings today. The runtime is an hour and 38 minutes. The main star is Chevy Chase. Tim Matheson, Joe Don Baker, and Dana Wheeler-Nicholson are supporting players. Michael Ritchie is the director. The screenplay credited to Andrew Bergman. Now, Fletch, if you know your literature, you know it's based on a novel. In fact, it's a character that's been in many, many novels that were written by this Harvard-educated author named Gregory MacDonald. MacDonald had just left his job working as a journalist for the Boston Globe, and he wanted to write a book based somewhat on his and his fellow reporters' many zany experiences as journalists there. The novel would end up becoming a critical and commercial hit when it was released in the mid-70s. It earned its author the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best First Novel from the Mystery Writers of America. At the time of its publication, the novel had been optioned. Actor-comedian Alan King and his partner, actor-filmmaker Rupert Hitzig of King Hitzig Productions, ended up optioning it for Columbia Pictures. The author himself, Gregory MacDonald, was going to script. They cycled through a who's who of actors to attach to this. Burt Reynolds, Charles Grodin, a whole bunch of others. Nothing was really sticking, and so it kind of languished. It had originally been slated to be released in 1975. The casting delays and some of the production problems ended up delaying it into 1976. However, the real problem was that there were no studios who were really gung-ho on moving forward with the project. They shopped it around a lot of places. The production would end up getting scrapped altogether, and that's when the film rights were sold to this Paris-based company called Fred Roy Productions that was headed by Claude Berta and Jonathan Burroughs. Now, interestingly enough, during this period, Chevy Chase, who happened to be a former high school classmate of the young producer Jonathan Burroughs. He was made an offer to appear in the film, but his manager had declined it on his behalf without even consulting him. They ended up moving on. Richard Dreyfus, George Siegel were pursued, but they ended up declining as well. Burroughs was so desperate to get this Fletch project sold that he even submitted 
the script for it multiple times. He changed the title. He changed the binders. He made it look like they were completely different projects, even though the script was basically the same, but it was rejected every single time. So not much would come of it, and that left this project in limbo until 1980, and that's when a British record label, Charisma Records, vowed to put up $3.5 million to make the film. Charisma Records wanted to put Mick Jagger as the star, and the singer, Jagger, was genuinely interested in appearing in the film for quite a while. However, Gregory MacDonald, who had the rights in the contract to decline casting choices for Fletch, ended up nixing it. In the end, he claimed that Mick Jagger was too far from the all-American type that was needed for the role of Fletch. Charisma Records had a backup choice of David Bowie. He wasn't even asked. They figured he would be declined for the very same reason that Mick Jagger was. Movie making ended up being too expensive for the record label at that time. They soon lost interest in making films altogether, so they shopped around the film rights that they had in their possession before the label would end up getting bought by Virgin Records in 1983. That's when producer Peter Douglas, who had been interested in seeing this film get made since he had read the original novel almost 10 years prior, bought out the rights for Fletch with this eye to cast his half-brother, actor Michael Douglas, into the lead role and treat Williams kind of a backup choice for him there, but the production would still get delayed. Both Douglas and Williams ended up getting involved in Romancing the Stone and Prince of the City, respectively. Peter Douglas soon connected with William Morris agent Stan Kamen, who would end up putting together a package of talent for him that was very viable, and that included director Michael Ritchie, Chevy Chase as the star, and a lot of the character actors for the sporting cast. After shopping the project around, Universal Pictures ended up buying this package, and that put Fletch quickly into production in 1983. However, the studio heads at Universal did not like one thing about it, and that was Gregory McDonald's original script based on his novel. They were really not interested in proceeding with it as it was, and it was specifically because of the drug-dealing aspects of the undercover case that Fletch was working on. They felt that the film market was already saturated with a lot of drug-dealing and drug-related stories at the time. They didn't want to seem like just another film that was doing a lot of the same thing. They also wanted to change the setting. They didn't like the Santa Monica setting. They wanted to move it to Miami, where they would get a little bit more eye candy, more pizzazz to the film. At that time, co-producer Alan Greisman, who was brought in by Peter Douglas to help him get the film made, he hired screenwriter Jerry Belson to concoct this new screenplay, not based on any of McDonald's Fletch novels. It was to have a film noir vibe. And the main gist of that script was that there was this beautiful wife of this Latin American dictator that was going to lure in Fletch to help her in part of the murder plot, and that would be set in Miami. However, Belson's script was ultimately deemed too dark and disturbing by those very same execs that didn't like the original script, so they set about looking to stay with the original concept, but with a different script than the one Gregory McDonald had thrown in. So screenwriter Andrew Bergman was brought in, not only due to his successful comedy screenwriting experience, he had co-written Blazing Saddles and The In-Laws, but he was also himself an author of a couple of detective novels, so they thought he would be ideal. Bergman had never adapted someone else's work before, though, 
So he set about rescripting from the original novel with the already cast Chevy Chase in mind and made it a Chevy Chase vehicle, at least trying to add to his strengths of what he could play. And Bergman opened up the scope of the book to get Fletch out and about much more often instead of having phone conversations. And he reduced his wanton womanizing and some of the bad behavior with his ex-wives that got in the way of our liking of the character. Bergman gave Fletch more personality, as such as being a fan of the Los Angeles Lakers, or combining the drug dealer story with the hired hit plot of the film. Shooting would end up beginning in 1984, primarily in and around the Los Angeles area. Chevy Chase was already into his 40s, which was a bit older than the young ladies' man that Gregory McDonald had portrayed in the novels, but after so many starts and stops, this was probably the best that we're going to hope for and still get the film made. McDonald did ultimately give Chevy Chase his blessing. McDonald felt Chase did exhibit the right amount of mischievousness to play the role of Fletch effectively, even if he wasn't quite the ladies' man that he envisioned the character to be from his novels. Now, as far as what the film is about, you know, Chevy Chase here is playing this Los Angeles Times investigative reporter. His name is Irwin M. Fletcher. He prefers to be called by his nickname of Fletch. Don't call him Irwin, pretty much in this film. He writes under the pseudonym of Jane Doe for the purpose of the paper in order to keep his anonymity as an undercover investigator intact. Now, while he's working undercover as a junkie trying to uncover the secret of a major beachside drug ring, Fletch ends up approached by this wealthy businessman named Alan Stanwyck, played by Tim Matheson. Stanwyck thinks that Fletch is a transient and he makes him an offer of $50,000 to kill him. The story is that Stanwyck has bone cancer and does not want to be around to endure the most painful aspects of the disease. He wants his wife to get the insurance on it, and she won't do that if it's a suicide. He has to be killed. So sensing another scoop, Fletch agrees, but he investigates Stanwyck and soon learns that the two stories that he is covering at the time are almost one and the same in many respects. Now, this role is probably Chevy Chase's best showcase of his often squandered talents. He has to undergo several different disguises in his effort to get to the bottom of things. He has many personas. He has many looks. Those are good for some amusing character comedy pieces. Fletch adopts a variety of famous names for his characters, including Ted Nugent, Harry S. Truman, G. Gordon Liddy, Don Corleone. Even Babar the Elephant gets a reference in this film. Chevy Chase claims Fletch to be his all-time favorite film that he's been in due to the irony that donning over a dozen disguises, it allowed him to be more of himself, mostly because he is glib and cheeky, just like Chevy Chase is known to be in real life. He was given pretty much free reign to ad-lib many of his lines in this film. Even though it was scripted by Andrew Bergman, Chevy Chase ended up improvising a lot of his dialogue. Those names that he had for those side characters were given on the spot within the moment that they were filming. Now, director Michael Ritchie knew that the draw to Fletch was going to be as a Chevy Chase starring vehicle, first and foremost. So he encouraged Chevy Chase to do the things the way that he wanted, so long as he didn't deviate from the main plot or get too sidetracked riffing to not move the story forward when it needed to move. They would do each scene according to script, and then they would do additional takes letting Chevy Chase riff his dialogue any way he wanted, so long as his improvisation did not interfere with the general flow of the dialogue from the other actors, who were allowed to be somewhat loose with their dialogue as well, 
but they didn't want their characters to deviate from the intent or to interfere with Chevy Chase's stick. You know, the plot here is not particularly interesting taking on its own. It is classic noir detective story stuff, but most of the fun comes from actually seeing how Fletch gets in and out of sticky situations that are brought out by that plot, with Chevy Chase's ad-libs perfectly in sync with how Fletch would have to continue to pile on the put-ons in order to gain information without being outed as fraudulent. The absurdity in witnessing all of the other characters confused, but not quite catching on to Fletch's game, is what makes Fletch fun to watch. They are not in on the joke that Fletch and the rest of us are as spectators. For instance, one scene has Fletch breaking into a home that he discovers is being guarded by this local rube with a shotgun to whom Fletch asserts while standing in the bedroom that he is with the mattress police. That's why he's there. He's investigating why there are no tags on the mattresses. The film is entertaining and humorous. Although the underlying murder plot, it's not really the main focus. It is what ties the comedy together, and it makes it work because it does spark some moments of interest, and it has occasionally a surprising gravity to the film, and that leads Fletch to feel weighty despite its clowning, much in the same way that Beverly Hills Cop had done for Eddie Murphy the year prior. The tone and setting as a vehicle for a comedic actor is not the only one that you could draw parallels between Beverly Hills Cop and Fletch. They are very much of the same type. Both films happen to feature very memorable, earworm-worthy scores from synth composer Harold Faltemeyer as one of the main highlights of the experience. Despite coming in late to the project, Faltemeyer was replacing the original composer, Tom Scott, very late into the process. In fact, there's some promotional materials that has Tom Scott's name in, as the composer. Also like Beverly Hills Cop, in addition to Faltemeyer's score, Fletch has on its soundtrack, a few songs by popular artists. You have the opening and closing credits song by Stephanie Mills called Bit by Bit. That's referenced from a line in the film about how Stanwick's cancer is destroying him bit by bit. There are other songs on the soundtrack by Dan Hartman, The Fix, and Kim Wilde. Now, one of Faltermeyer's pieces for a dream sequence that ended up not getting used in the film would end up getting used as the basis for a film he did next called Top Gun, the Top Gun anthem a year later. It was at the suggestion of Billy Idol that he used that piece. Faltermeyer was providing keyboards for Billy Idol at the time for his Whiplash Smile tour, and Idol's lead guitarist Steve Stevens would accompany him on that track. It would end up winning the Grammy Award for Best Pop Instrumental Performance in 1987. Now, as far as the excised dream sequence, there's a scene that's actually in the finished film. Uh, Fletch punches a framed picture of Stanwyck standing next to then Los Angeles Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda. Fletch punches and hits Tommy Lasorda, breaks the glass of the frame, claiming he hates Tommy Lasorda. That was intended to be a callback to the dream sequence that ended up getting cut. It was similar to the one in which Fletch imagines himself a superstar power forward for the Los Angeles Lakers. In the excised dream sequence, he is a pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers who gets unceremoniously pulled from the game by Tommy Lasorda. It makes for a funny moment despite the tie-in scene being dropped because of the unexpected and unexplained reaction from Fletch. I think it's I think it still stands up as a funny scene without the callback. The poster, if you look at the original poster for the film, reveals that Fletch also donned a hockey player outfit at some point, and that reveals another fantasy sports sequence that was removed from the final cut as well. Now, Andrew Bergman's adaptation, it's a loose construction of McDonald's original novel he put together in about less than a month's time. He 
ended up finding himself having to put in scenes based on what locations were available for the shoot. For instance, Michael Ritchie, the director, had secured the use of an airplane hangar for part of his shoot, so he asked Bergman to write a scene specifically to use an airplane and the hangar, and that resulted in the Gordon Liddy airplane inspector character and one of the funnier scenes in the film. In the book, Alan Stanwyck is not directly tied in with the drug ring subplot. Instead, he's merely revealed to be a bigamist who wants to fake his death. Initially, McDonald was not very happy with Bergman's take at tying those things together, but Michael Ritchie was able to show the author how things would end up working after inviting him to the set, and eventually he won McDonald over. McDonald still maintains that the script is not quite how he would have done it, but he does acknowledge that the way he tried to do it was not likely to have been successful, if it were even to be made at all. So he is content with what they were able to do, given the Hollywood system of things. Chevy Chase also claims that although Bergman's name is on the credits as the sole screenwriter, he is actually the writer of Fletch, at least the main character, due to his improvising all the film's best lines. Phil Alden Robinson and Jerry Belson, who I mentioned earlier had done one of the scripts that ended up not getting used, they also contributed some uncredited work on the script when revisions were needed while Bergman had moved on for a spell on another project that he was writing and directing. That was called Big Trouble, but he ended up getting pulled from that project and went back to revising Fletch after that was done. Now, in addition to Chevy Chase, Fletch does benefit from a very solid cast of character actors who fill out some of the smaller roles. Richard Libertini as Fletch's boss is a standout. Joe Don Baker as the corrupt and bullying cop. M. Emmett Walsh as Stanwyck's jaded doctor. He's always good in these films. George Went, the drug-dealing Fat Sam, is in the film. Tim Matheson ends up delivering one of the better roles in his career as the man who seems trustworthy, at least until you find out better later. Dana Wheeler-Nicholson, she probably is not as seasoned as the other actors. She plays the romantic interest, Gail Stanwyck. But she does exude this nice, naive charm that actually fits in very well for the role as someone who would find Fletch exciting and also someone that Fletch would find alluring in this world full of takers and leeches. She is worthy, at least in his eyes. Gina Davis also delivers a funny and memorable turn as Fletch's Girl Friday at the paper, Larry. Gina Davis happens to probably be the only actor in the film other than Chevy Chase, who seems to be playing her part as comedic. Fletch would prove to be a box office success upon its release. It debuted at number two at the box office. It really did not have a good chance of getting number one because the juggernaut Rambo First Blood Part 2, it was in its second week of release and it was not going to let go of the top spot for quite a while. Nevertheless, Fletch did remain in the top 10 in the United States for six straight weeks, and it would rack up during that time nearly $60 million internationally, about $50 million of that in the U.S. and about $9 million of that overseas. And that was a great success because its budget was reportedly only $8 million, so a big hit for Chevy Chase and the rest. You know, even today, this is a fun film. It's a must-see for Chevy Chase fans. It's really the quintessential Chevy Chase film. Sorry to those people who like his vacation movies, but Fletch really does nail exactly why people did find Chevy Chase appealing in all of his aspects. His particular gift for deadpan smartassery is on full display throughout Fletch. This is a great 80s movie, not only in its vibe, but it still plays well for modern audiences, and it does manage to deliver laughs without a lot of the vulgarity that tends to permeate so many films of its ilk. It's also one of those movies that will make its fans laugh in equal amounts on the 10th time that they view it, 
as they did in the first, and possibly even more laughs because many people will catch jokes they may have missed before. It is a film you can watch over and over and still enjoy many times over the years. So that's why I'm giving Fletch three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means that I think Fletch is a good film, and I definitely recommend it for everybody who loves films of the 1980s. If you like Chevy Chase, if you just like really fun and witty and silly comedies, definitely give Fletch a look. I think you will have a good time. You know, this is not a movie that may knock you out the first time you watch it, but I've probably seen this movie, as I mentioned, 10 times, and I still find it very enjoyable. So three and a half stars is what I'm giving Fletch. Fletch was successful, and so therefore it has a sequel. That sequel did come out in the 1980s, so I will discuss that on my very next episode, Fletch Lives. It came out in 1989, and it was not based on any of the Gregory McDonald books. So it came out during a time in which there was a writer's strike. So very much reliant on whether Chevy Chase could ad-lib his way through that entire film. Is he successful? It's a film I've only seen once, which probably indicates I was not as enamored of that. But I am looking forward to catching up with it again after seeing Fletch. Fletch lives from 1989 on the very next episode, so you'll want to check that out. I'll also include a lot of the trivia about where Fletch went after the series on the next episode. So definitely will be very informative as to where the franchise, if you want to call it that, stands today. So catch that next week. Thanks everyone for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review and retrospective look at Fletch. If you have your own thoughts on Fletch, you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page. You got my email, my Instagram. All of those are adequate ways to get in touch with me. Until next time, thank you everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Thank you.